We are in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 37. So I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles there. Jeremiah, chapter 37. There's about a 17-year difference uh, between chapters 36 and 37. Chapters 37 and 38 take place before Jerusalem falls. Uh, the year is around 588, 587 uh, B.C. Uh, the hatred of Jeremiah by his own people has grown very strong at this point. Uh, the king, Zedekiah, is very desperate for help. In fact, he gets so desperate that he even calls on Jeremiah to come and help him out a little bit. Other leaders are convinced that Jeremiah is a traitor. Uh, they want to see him killed. And so we're going to kind of move quickly through chapter 37, and we're going to spend a little more time in chapter 38. But what we see in chapter 37, verses 1 through 5, is Zedekiah asks for prayer. It says, Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. King Zedekiah sent Jehuchal, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah, the priest, the son of Messiah, to Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, Please pray for us to the Lord our God. Now Jeremiah was still going in and out among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. The army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. Now, here we can see that, that Zedekiah, he's a pretty interesting guy. Uh, he was placed as king over Jerusalem by the king of Babylon. So therefore, a lot of people looked at him, and they saw him as nothing more than a puppet for Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't perceive him as a legitimate ruler. But the greatest problem that he had was not that. The greatest problem he had was he didn't listen to the words of the Lord as they came from Jeremiah. But on more than one occasion, he did ask Jeremiah to pray for the nation. You see it also back in chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. And so it appears to me that, that he's a person who's really more superstitious when it comes to prayer than anything else. Uh, one of the guys who sent to, to get Jeremiah, Zephaniah, was friendly toward him. We saw that back in chapter 29, verse 25. But we're also going to see this guy, Jehuel, who's ready to kill Jeremiah when we get to chapter 38. Now, the text tells us that at this point, Jeremiah wasn't in prison. And as well, Egypt was sending help to kind of try to help Jerusalem fight this battle. And so as a result, the Babylonians left off their siege against Jerusalem and they went to fight against Egypt. Now, there are a lot of people like Zedekiah in our culture, especially when you think about the political realm. We have these political rulers who ask people to pray for the country Yet they have no intention on leading the people in the country to a place where they obey God. And so you think about a national day of prayer. Because like in our country, we, we set aside a lot of politicians will come out. And it's all about all we need to pray for our nation, pray for our nation, pray for our nation. But here's the thing you've got to understand. A national day of prayer does no... Is a, a national day of prayer is of little value if there is not a national day of repentance. A national day of prayer is of little value if there is no national day of repentance. And that's what Zedekiah wanted. He said, just pray for us, just pray for us, just pray for us, and things will get better. 
condemnation at that point. The only thing that would help them was to repent of their sins and turn to God. There is nothing magical or even spiritually profitable in praying to God if we are not obeying God. And that's why when you see our culture today, when you have a National Day of Prayer, they have no problem with bringing in other religions. We'll bring in the Muslims and, and bring in all of these other religions and people who don't believe in Christ at all. But let's bring them all in. What is that? That's superstition. That's not really believing in prayer. That's being superstitious. And I know, and I know people like this who live lives that are completely ungodly, but they pray. And they truly believe that because they pray, there's some great benefit spiritually in their life. And, and we need to understand that that's, that's not the case at all. Prayer is not going to do anything for anyone, much less a nation, if we're not repenting before the Lord. But Zedekiah thought, well, hey, let's just pray about this situation. Let's just, let's just pray about it. So Jeremiah, he responds to Zedekiah's request in verses 6 through 10. Um, and he doesn't respond with his own words. He shares with the king the word of the Lord. And this is what he told the, the king. Look at verse 7. He said, first of all, the Egyptians are not going to succeed in helping you. Second of all, in verse 8, the Babylonians are coming and they're going to finish the job they started. And number 3 is in verse 9, don't deceive yourself into thinking that there's any hope for victory at all. God tells him, he says, look, even if this Babylonian army was wounded, they would still rise up and destroy the city with fire. And, and I don't think that's a testament to the resolve of the Babylonians as much as it is proof that the Babylonians aren't the ones fighting. It's the Lord fighting through them against Jerusalem. And so Zedekiah is warned against having any hope of victory at all. Remember that temporary lull in the battle I keep talking about? That temporary lull in the battle because the people have, um, uh, the, the Babylonians have left Jerusalem and now they're fighting against Egypt. That temporary lull in the battle was giving them hope and it should not have given them hope at all. The ability to wound the Babylonian soldiers, to, to make some headway in the battle. That shouldn't give them any hope either. He says Jerusalem is going to fall. It's going to be in the hands of the Babylonians. Now that was certainly not the reaction Zedekiah wanted to hear when he asked Jeremiah to pray for it. He asked for prayer. What did he get? Man, he got a sermon, didn't he? But you see, Jeremiah could not pray for the Lord to spare the city because if Jeremiah prayed for the Lord to spare the city, he would be actually praying against the will of God. Against the will of God. And I've mentioned that to you on a couple of occasions when we've been going through this book. And I've seen it in, in, in my personal life dealing with people that, that you'll see somebody and you can tell that because of their rebellion to God, because of their, their sin, consequences have come into their life. And, and, and many times even the Lord Himself has brought those consequences. And they'll say, Pastor, pray for me that this would be gone. Pray for me that this would no longer be here. And there have been many times I haven't been able to pray that because I'm wondering, if I pray that, am I praying against the will of the Lord? Because your actions are causing you to be in so much trouble. You know, I know I broke the law and I know I deserve to be in prison, but, but, but Pastor, pray that I won't go to prison. I don't know that I can pray that because this may be what God's using in your life. 
to get you to the place where you'll finally hit rock bottom and finally call out to God in repentance. That was the situation that Jeremiah was in. He said, I'm not going to just go through the motions and pray that we're going to be okay. He's not going to pray against the will of the Lord. And then we see in verses 11 through 15 that Jeremiah is arrested by his own people. It says, Now when the Chaldean army had withdrawn from Jerusalem at the approach of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah set out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to receive his portion there among the people. When he was at the Benjamin gate, a sentry there named Erijah, the son of Shelemiah, son of Hananiah, seized Jeremiah the prophet, saying, You are deserting to the Chaldeans. And Jeremiah said, It's a lie. I'm not deserting to the Chaldeans. But Erijah would not listen to him and seized Jeremiah and brought him to the officials and the officials were enraged at Jeremiah and they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan the secretary for it had been made a prison. So Jeremiah, knowing that the city is about to fall, he, he begins a journey probably going back to his hometown which was in the territory of Benjamin. And, and now some people say, well, this is in response to Jeremiah buying that land. No, no, no. It wasn't in response to what happened in chapter 32 because this event happens before then. He was probably simply going back home to take care of some affairs because he knew the end was imminent. He knew if he was going to do that, he needed to do it right now. All we know is that what he was going to do concerned some land that would probably belong to him. Now, on his way out, he was charged with Treason by this officer named Erija. Now, Erija's job was to watch people who came in and out of the gate. And it was his opinion that Jeremiah was defecting. He believed that Jeremiah was leaving Jerusalem and going to the Babylonians and joining with them. Because he looked at Jeremiah with suspicion already because he kept telling the nation, submit to Babylon, submit to Babylon. So in his mind, he believes that Jeremiah is just a traitor. He's a defector. And evidently, he wasn't by himself. Others had probably talked and said, you know what, I think maybe Jeremiah's a spy. Maybe Jeremiah works for the Babylonians. And that's why he keeps telling us to submit to this government. So that they, they arrest him and, and they beat him. And then they throw him in jail uh, in the house of Jonathan, the secretary, that they had made this place into to a jail cell there. It had been converted into a jail, and that's where they imprison him. Now, in verses 16 through 21, Jeremiah is transferred to another prison. Now, the language used in, in verse 16 suggests that Jeremiah is placed in an underground cell. Notice where it says, When Jeremiah had come to the dungeon cells and remained there many days. Now, this was probably still connected to Jonathan's house. But the idea here is it's underground. And so we see that Zedekiah, though, he, he still has an interest in him. But he doesn't want people to know he's speaking with the prophet. Look, look what it says there next. It says, um, King Zedekiah sent for him and received him. The king questioned him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from the Lord? Jeremiah said, There is. Then he said, You shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. Isn't that interesting how he doesn't want anyone to know that he's talking to Jeremiah. He still wants to talk to him. And so he arranges this secret meeting with Jeremiah. Probably because he doesn't want the officers thinking that he has some sort of sympathy for, for the prophet. Um, because they looked at Jeremiah as a traitor, a defector. And so Zedekiah says, is there any word from the Lord? In other words, has God changed his mind? 
Have you prayed for us yet? Did God say, yeah, I'll give you some more time? But Jeremiah said, look, there's a word, but, but there's not a new word. The message hasn't changed. The king is going to be delivered to Babylon. And what we see next is personal. Jeremiah gets really personal here. And he has some things he wants to ask the king. And this is interesting. He says to the king, what have I done to deserve prison? Now you can see the sincerity in that question there. He says, where are the prophets who told you Babylon would not succeed? Jeremiah said, this doesn't make any sense. The prophets who told you Babylon would not succeed and the, and the city would not fall, they're walking around free. You've not done anything to them and it's clear that they're false prophets because they told you this wouldn't happen. But me, the one who told you the truth, the prophet who simply said, look, Jerusalem's going to fall. I'm the one you've thrown in prison. What have I done to deserve this, Jeremiah says. Those guys, they're the ones who deserve to be thrown into prison. And so after pouring his heart out, he then has a request for the king. Notice the broken of the prophet, brokenness of the prophet in verse 20. Now hear, please, O my Lord the King, let my humble plea come before you, and do not send me back to the house of Jonathan the secretary, lest I die there. So he humbly asked the king not to send him back to that dungeon. Jeremiah fears if he gets back to that dungeon that he's going to die. Who knows what was happening to him in that dungeon? Who knows what they were doing to him? The circumstances were obviously very difficult there. And in a surprising turn, the king actually grants Jeremiah's request. Transfers him back to the court of the guard. Remember back in chapter 32, verse 12, that place that was connected to the palace? The living conditions would have been better there. He would have some interaction with people there. But notice also that the king made a provision for Jeremiah to be given a loaf of bread each day. As long as it was, bread was available. Look what he says in verse 21. So King Jedekiah gave orders and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guard. And a loaf of bread was given him daily from the Baker Street until all the bread of the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. So God moved the hardened heart of this king to transfer Jeremiah from a dungeon to a cell where he would have a little bit of interaction with people and then said, look, as long as there is bread in this city, you'll get a loaf a day to eat. That's the grace of God in his life. That's the mercy of the Lord because there's no reason you could really think of that this wicked king would, would have any mercy. Unless, of course, there was some superstition in Zedekiah and he was thinking, boy, if this is a prophet of God and I kill him, what will God do to him? Maybe, I don't know. But either way, it's the Lord who moves this man's heart to spare Jeremiah. So that brings us to chapter 38. And we see that, that Jeremiah is confined in a cistern for continuing to preach. Now there's a lot of hard names in the first couple of verses here. Now Shephatiah, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pasher, Jukal, the son of Shelemiah, and Pasher, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. Thus says the Lord, he who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. 
He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given unto the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Then the official said to the king, Let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in this city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. King Zedekiah said, Behold, he's in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. Now here's the interesting thing. While Jeremiah is in prison in the court of the guard here, guess what he keeps doing? He's like the Apostle Paul. He keeps preaching. And his message is detailed in verses 2 and 3. He says to those people, the people in this city are going to die by the sword, die by famine, die by disease. He says the people who surrender to Babylon, they'll live. And he says this whole city is going to be taken to Babylon. So he's preaching to these people. He's continuing to preach this message, having some interaction with people. Now, it was the opinion of the Jewish officials listed in verse 1 that the preaching of Jeremiah was doing harm to the morale of the people. When you look at verse 4, you see that. The official said to the king, let this man be put to death. Notice this, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in this city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. They said, you know, our soldiers are giving up. Our soldiers are not fighting because you've got this guy over here preaching and telling us that there's no reason to fight at all. And they said, these actions are treasonous. These actions are worthy of death. This man is causing us to lose the war. And by the way, the fact that Jeremiah had an audience is proof that the movement from the dungeon to the court of the guard was better for him. It allowed him to have interaction with people. And Zedekiah says something that kind of surprises us next. After seeing him make sure he had food to eat every day, he then says, you know what? Do what you want to do with him. You almost get the idea that Zedekiah is just fed up with all this. Uh, Now Zedekiah could have ordered the death of the prophet himself. But he didn't. And I think this just shows how weak of a leader he was. He didn't have enough backbone to release Jeremiah. But he also didn't have enough backbone to order Jeremiah to be killed. For for those reasons and others, a lot of people have compared him to Pilate. When you look at the way Pilate was with Jesus, you see some similarities between Zedekiah and Jeremiah. And Zedekiah said, I can't stop what y'all are doing to the officials. That wasn't true. He could have. He could have stopped him from killing Jeremiah, but he wouldn't. This is just a weak leader. That's all he is. And maybe he, maybe he's ready to give up. Maybe he thinks, look, there's no reason to go on. There's nothing I can do for anybody any longer. Maybe he feared with siding with Jeremiah because they think he was a traitor. I don't know. So the officials, they got what they wanted, but they want Jeremiah to die slow death. They don't cut his head off. It's too quick. So they throw him in a cistern. Cisterns were used to gather rainwater, often dug into limestone, often very deep with a muddy bottom. This one was empty. Had no water in it. The only thing it had was a mud bottom. Water had evaporated from it. 
And they threw him in there. And it says that when they did, that he sank into the mud. You can imagine, I don't know if you've ever been in just a soupy mud before that was deep, but it's very difficult to move your legs, to pick them up. So you could just imagine looking down there and seeing the prophet just covered in mud, stuck in this horrible place, left there to die. It was their intention that that cistern be his headstone, be his tomb, be his grave. He's chunked him in there, in this deep cistern, and just, we'll just let him die. But again, by God's grace, we see that Jeremiah is rescued in verses 7 through 13. When Ebed Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Uh, Ebed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern, and he will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, Take thirty men with you from here and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with them and went to the house of the king to a wardrobe in the storehouse and took from there old rags and worn out clothes which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so. Then they drew Jeremiah up with ropes, lifted him out of the cistern, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. So we see that, that Jeremiah finds help from a very unlikely person. He's rescued by someone who doesn't even belong to his own people. This Ethiopian eunuch is introduced to us. His name is Ebed-Melech, which means the king's servant, which means that he was probably taken as a slave and he was given that name. That wasn't his original name. He was simply the king's servant, a prisoner of war. Now eunuchs oftentimes were used to watch over the king's harem And that's probably what the role of this man was. And because of his position close to the king, he had the ear of the king. And evidently people were talking about what they did to Jeremiah. This eunuch found out. He goes to the king. He tells Zedekiah. And look at what he tells him in verse 9. He says, what they did was evil. He said they cast him in a cistern. And they're starving him to death. This eunuch must have known something that everybody else didn't know. Must have known that there was something in Zedekiah that would move him to want to rescue Jeremiah. He probably knew the king better than many of the other people did. So Zedekiah here gives instructions. Take a team of 30 men. Why 30 men? That's a lot of men. I don't know, maybe he thought they might have to fight. Maybe they thought he was stuck in the mud so deep it would take that strength to lift him up out of the mud. I don't know. But but the depth of the cistern is seen in verse 11 there. He talks about these old clothes and all that are used for padding. Jeremiah is to put these clothes underneath his arms, tie that rope to himself so he's not injured when they're lifting him up. And this is probably for a couple of reasons. Number one, he was stuck in the mud. Probably couldn't get out. But number two, Jeremiah was weak. Even if Jeremiah were to get his feet up out of that mud, he was probably so weak from being beaten and not eating for such a long period of time, there's no way he could have climbed that rope. 
And there's no way he could have just even held on to that rope and had them pull him up. He had to tie that rope to himself, use that clothing as some type of padding under his arms so the ropes didn't burn him. Which, by the way, don't you love the detail here? And not to tell us that, did he? But there's a lot of detail that's given here. But tying that rope around him ensured that he wouldn't give out of energy and that he wouldn't fall. Now, once Jeremiah was removed from the cistern, he's then taken back to the court of the guard. And I don't know how Jeremiah's enemies responded to this, but they must not have been very happy that the king had changed his mind. He had just said, do whatever you want to do with him. And when they did, he rescued him. And so Zedekiah is not done with him yet. And then he, he privately summons him again. Verses 14 through 28, Jeremiah is again privately summoned. He's taken to an entrance that's called, or a gate that's called uh, the third entrance. We don't know exactly where that was, but it was probably a private entrance. And Jeremiah is discreetly taken to the king's residence. The king wants information. What is the Lord going to do? What is God going to do? It's as if Zedekiah is hoping for this 11th hour stay of execution. He's hoping that little phone on the wall rings just before the switch is pulled, you know. And he gets the pardon from God. What is the Lord saying? What is the Lord saying? And Jeremiah asked the king to promise not to kill him. And then he says, you know, I don't know why I'm going to tell you this anyway, because you're not going to listen when I tell you. Zedekiah says, Jeremiah, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to hand you over to people that will kill you. Just tell me. Tell me what the Lord says. And then in verses 17 and 18, Jeremiah tells Zedekiah what he's been preaching all along. The message never changes. Your only hope is to surrender. And if you don't surrender, things are going to get worse. Either way, no matter what happens, Zedekiah, Babylon is coming and Babylon is going to take over Jerusalem. And then Zedekiah says something interesting in verse 19. Look what he says there. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them and they deal cruelly with me. So there was a good number of people, of, of these Jewish people, who could see the writing on the wall. They knew they weren't going to make it through this. So they left Jerusalem and they defected to the side of the Babylonians. Probably giving information to the Babylonians. This is what they had thought Jeremiah had done as well. He had not done that, but there had been Jewish people who had done that. These were people who were just looking for mercy. And Zedekiah said, look, if they take me over there, man, the king of Babylon might give me over to those Jewish defectors. And if he does that, they're going to blame me for the fall of Jerusalem, for the large loss of life of their brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children who have died. They'll probably torture me. They'll probably kill me. So Zedekiah admits it. He says, I'm scared to death, not of the Babylonians, but I'm scared to death they'll give me to my own people. And Zedekiah's reluctance to obey the Lord, he says, is for his own safety. He says, that's why I'm not obeying the Lord. Jeremiah assures the king, says, this isn't going to happen. He says, but if you refuse to surrender, things are just going to get worse. He mentions that the women of the palace, once they're captured by the Babylonians, are going to taunt Zedekiah on their way out. Look at verse 22. 
Behold, all the women left in the house of the king of Judah were being led out to the officials of the king of Babylon and were saying, you trusted, Your trusted friends have deceived you and prevailed against you. Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn away from you. So, so it's as if he's speaking prophetically here, as if he's seeing these, uh, these women coming out of the, of the palace being led in chains uh, to, to captivity by the Babylonians. And you see these women, and, and they're singing a song, actually. It's, it's, by the way, it can also be found in the first part of Obadiah verse 7. And, and the song mocks Zedekiah. The song mocks him for being deceived by the nations that promised to help him. And it ends there with a reference to Jeremiah's time in the cistern. Except now it's not Jeremiah in the cistern. Now it's the king who is, who is being tossed in this metaphorical cistern. He's in the mud. And he's going to be more humiliated than Jeremiah was. In verse 23, we see all the king's wives and children, including, including himself, are going to be victims in Babylon as the city is burned with fire. Now, Zedekiah is not planning on listening to a word Jeremiah says. All he's concerned about is whether people know what he and the prophet have discussed. If you look at verses 24 through 26, you see the king gives Jeremiah instructions. He says, look, if anybody asks you what we were talking about, don't tell them the truth. If anybody asks you what we were talking about, you tell them that you wanted to ask me not to send you back to the dungeon, but to send you back to Jonathan's house. So at this point, Zedekiah, he's, he, he's, he's scared. He's thinking, you know, people are recognizing I'm spending a little bit too much time with Jeremiah. Word's getting around. Hey, he's sympathizing with Jeremiah. And so just as Zedekiah suspected, Jeremiah was quizzed about the conversation. He said, hey, what in the world is Zedekiah talking to you about? This is what the officers are asking. What, what is he talking to you about? And Jeremiah told them exactly what the king told him to say. And they believed him. And he remained in the court of the guard. Now some have wondered about this. They said, well, why did Jeremiah do that? Was he sinning and doing this? Did Jeremiah give in to temptation here and, and sin against God? Well, let's think about that for a moment. First of all, maybe he did. But let's just assume that he did sin. Let's just assume that, that not telling them the truth when they, when they asked about what the conversation was about was a sin. I'm not justifying that at all. But I will tell you this, he's a human. And he was in a weakened state. And he didn't want to go back to that dungeon. So before you cast too many stones at Jeremiah, compare your level of obedience with his. Amen? Because we haven't seen a whole lot wrong in his life, have we? So even if it is, okay, it was a sin, it was wrong. No different than when you and I sinned. But secondly, maybe Jeremiah did ask the king not to return him to the dungeon. The entire conversation that he and the king had isn't in here. And if that's the case, then Jeremiah was just guilty of telling a partial truth. Either way, none of this takes away from the character of Jeremiah. He's a great man of God. His life has been exemplary. His commitment to God should not be questioned at all. Now, as we conclude tonight, I, I want us to think for just a moment about the similarities here that we see to Christ. First of all, Christ was hauled before kings, wasn't he? Trial after trial after trial, Christ was hauled before kings, just as Jeremiah was. Secondly, Christ was beaten, 
Christ was arrested and Christ was tortured by who? His own people. His own people. In the same way that Jeremiah was. Thirdly, just as Jeremiah continued to preach even after he was arrested, Christ continued to preach. And even further than that, Christ continued to preach even from the cross. And so again, as I've been pointing this out to you, there are similarities here that you can see in the book of Jeremiah and in the life of Christ. Now Jesus was not thrown in a cistern, but His dead body was thrown in a grave. And He rose again, not because someone dropped a rope down to Him, amen? He rose Himself up from the dead because He said, I'll lay my life down and I'll take it up again. And so we see that the greater prophet is Jesus. And we see some shadows, some similarities between this great prophet of God and the great prophet of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And His faith and repentance in Him. That's required of all of us to have forgiveness of sin. Amen. So there we have it. The brethren and the sistren title I was quite proud of. Amen? No respect. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you, Lord, for the great example of Jeremiah the prophet. Far greater than we are. So obedient, suffering and dying and still preaching. Lord, help us to live in some measure as He did. And thank You for Christ, the greater prophet, who was lied about, arrested and beaten by His own people and thrown in a grave, but rose again. May our faith be in Him. In Jesus' name, Amen.